0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This is indeed an honor, uh, of course, to begin to talk about my research and my line of work. And to try to give you a picture of this, it's been more than a challenge. One would thought, I've talked about this many times, just to pull it all together would not be that difficult, but it has been more than a challenge. Um, And so it's wonderful to try to present this to you. Uh, What I'll be talking to you about today are some of the alternative ways that I have focused on framing Uh, I titled this Perspectives and Paradoxes and Promises, but it's going to be really heavy on the perspectives to kind of let you know, to blend in different examples of the kind of research that I have done. You know, I first became interested in conflict framing when it was in the 80s, and I had the good fortune to go sit in and watch teacher negotiations. You can't do this these days. But in the 80s, we actually could do these things. I got into two different teaching bargaining uh, sessions and was able to watch those sessions. And I was amazed at the kind of stories they were telling me about what went on and how things uh, operated within that. Uh, There were stories that had to do with old John, who was an accountant. And uh, both sides told me the story independently. They told me how he really made things difficult in the bargaining because he always used 18-month figures instead of 12 months. Uh, He tended to go to Florida during the actual bargaining experience. He was a seedy character and nobody liked him. And I thought it was amazing. He was still the kind of common enemy that actually brought them together in certain ways. And I thought, these stories are kind of interesting. They're kind of intriguing. And uh, I think that uh, it's it's kind of interesting to start playing out what they are and what are they doing in the conflict situation. I became even more interested in framing and stories when I studied the Edwards Aquifer dispute in Texas. Uh, this is actually a part of a, a project that was a multidisciplinary and multi-universities called Making Sense of Environmental Conflict. Uh, And the Edwards Aquifer is a fascinating little uh, dispute in its own right, Uh, 40 years in the making, uh, and in part because in Texas, uh, underground water is private. Surface water is public. So what do you have? You have a lot of law of the biggest pump. You've got protection of a common resource uh, that extends across six counties. Uh, This culminated in a... A heavy amount of disputes that became very public as well as uh, going on in a variety of hearings uh, from the 1980s and 90s. There were debates around, well, let's just rename it a river. Well, that didn't go over very big. Uh, Let's have a few lawsuits from the Environmental Protection Agency on endangered species. Well, that actually made a mark. Finally, the federal government issued an edict uh, to the state legislature to create a regional water association. Uh, But that was, of course, after a catfish farmer moved into the area and took 100,000 gallons of water a day out of the aquifer. Uh, So interesting, there were lots of vivid stories and vivid representations of this dispute. Uh, The media framing, and I'll be talking a little bit about that today, although that's not the main thrust of my work, was very vivid and colorful. Uh, it, It certainly added to the polarization, about what's operating in here, uh, warring urban versus rural, uh, country, uh, rural factions involved, us versus them, storm brewing in the West, feuding interest. A lot of the media coverage of it also cast this conflict intractable, and that meant it was things like failed plans, hitting dead ends, stymied efforts. Uh, characterizations of each of the disputants involved in this, we're also quite vivid. Uh, farmers making statements, well, you can have my water after you've peeled my cold dead hand off the pump. Uh, so these are in our newspaper articles, they're in our media, and they're framing. They're framing what the conflict is about. They're helping those involved, as well as stakeholders who read them and public audiences, define what the situation is. So my work is essentially taking on these notions of framing and stories and trying to unpack them around certain conflict theories and particularly conflict framing theories. Before I go into that, I want to talk a little bit about conflict itself, get a common definition of that, so that we kind of come together on that notion. I define conflict as holding perceived incompatible goals, uh, values, interests, and uh, actions that might be taken. Uh, the parties, interested in a conflict, are mutually interdependent. They need each other. If they didn't, they just walk away. Uh, they have a common resource they're working with, they have common goals or common actions, or they just walk away from it. Also, the parties can block each other's interests involved in that. Conflict, by definition, is also very paradoxical. And that means that it involves a lot of oppositional tensions that are built into it, which is another reason why some of it evolves as it does. Some of those oppositional tensions are are cooperation in order to get the goal you want or get a settlement. And at the same time, you've got competition as to which one you want involved in it. And they're simultaneously pushing and pulling on each other. The same is true for trust. I usually trust each other enough, they're at the table, they're working together, they're trying to get hearings, they're trying to work things out, but they don't trust each other a whole lot, and those two are in tension. People usually are are, uh, revealing information by concealing, interesting enough. So there's a lot of paradox involved in here, and I call conflict as kind of a, a tightrope. Uh, you're kind of swinging and you don't want to swing too much to one direction, too much to the other direction. You want to find a way to take it and and tack that sailboat the right way instead of uh, ending up in what we would call escalation. Escalation is when that conflict spirals out of control, where it's very difficult uh, for the parties to get control and settle it and come up with options for it. But you don't want to be exploited. So there's your other side of that. So there's continually a de-escalation, escalation um, and I'm very interested in the patterns that create some of this and how those get managed through communication. Let me situate my research approach. First of all, my work is primarily in the area of organizations, labor management disputes, interorganizational communication between different organizations uh, involved. Uh, I do not do work in the area of uh, international ethno uh, political conflicts. I believe those are important. I'm not sure they operate the same way. And in this way, I look at the definition and nature of the problems that people are working on and trying to define as they go. Uh, I also look at the issues that develop, sense-making that goes on, and the courses that disputes take over time. Uh, I believe that the contextual features are really very important in conflict situations. However, I believe they are brought in to the conflict by those involved in them. They are not deterministic. And to give you an example of that, my two teachers' bargaining groups uh, worked under the same state law, Public Law 217. They had the same labor regulations. They had the same kind of constraints about what they could bargain and what they couldn't. Uh, They were working under ways in which they uh, actually had contracts that were uh, administered by the same labor relation boards and so forth, but one of them had a 30-page contract with only the bare minimum of things that had to be there. The other one had 150 pages and they were under the same state laws constraints. So there's a lot of the, what I would say, constructing of this process even under regulations. So people pull in those context features a lot into how they're developing the uh, the conflict. My work is more ethnographic, discourse-based, I dig deep into things, I'm looking for detailed tracking and mapping of kinds of patterns that might be there for generative insights as well as for testing out uh, the literature and the work that's been done. Uh, In terms of methods, I do much more in terms of content analysis. Uh, I also look at interaction analysis and some discourse analysis I'll talk about as well as some kind of rhetorical approaches uh, that people have brought to bear on uh, the interaction processes. Uh, Finally, uh, some of the work that I've employed is more what I would call emergent. Other is more strategic. So I'll be giving you examples of both of those as I go through some of the uh, research projects that I've done. Let me begin by kind of giving you an overview. So first I'm going to be talking just in general about interdisciplinary and communication work on framing and frames. Uh, very massive, a lot of work out there in a, a variety of disciplines, sociology, psychology, uh, certainly in uh, public, uh, in political science, and in a variety of what I would call social science disciplines have drawn on training. Um, I will then try to come in and talk a little bit about some efforts that I have had with other scholars to disentangle this. How can we make this apply, particularly for conflict training? And I'll talk about those three areas, cognitive approaches, sense-making approaches, and interactional approaches. Uh, Then I'll go through how some of the definitions of conflict framing vary across some of those. Uh, Most scholars, and and really just depends on kind of exactly where they shape it, but they're shaping basically a definition of conflict framing as different ways of defining what the situation might be. Uh, Labeling it, uh, providing the social meanings for it, and so forth. Uh, It's like a picture frame. They're actually looking at, you know, how do they draw boundaries around this conflict, what's in the figure, what's in the ground in that, and they're actually doing that through a variety of different kinds of perspectives. Uh, Then I will talk a little about my own conflict framing uh, research and reframing uh, and focus on some of these perspectives. First of all, let me uh, say to you, why why look at this? Why bother to focus on conflict framing? What, what can we learn by doing some of this? Uh, for one thing, I think that we learn a lot, of course, about interpretations. It's very hard to get in interpretations and meanings and conflicts uh, kind of situations, and the framing lens helps capture that. Uh, there's been quite a bit of research that talks about how the type and quality of a negotiated agreement has to do with some kind of alignment or convergence or consensus around the framing. So this is another critically important arena. I also think that it's linked in some ways to solutions or resolutions as opposed to perpetuating the conflict. When I talk about a resolution, I don't mean that exactly the conflict goes away. We move on. We move on. We bring a, a closure to it. And then it's been also been linked to what mediators and third-party neutrals and others have called conflict transformation which is ways in which the conflict produces new understandings, new learnings, new meanings about uh, what's happening, and new relationships about the way in which they go. Uh, So there's some really good reasons in my mind that this is a critical lens for trying to get a a deeper insight into conflicts. Um, Let's talk just briefly about uh, the interdisciplinary work and the work in communication that has gone on with frames and framing. Uh, This goes way back in the literature, uh, certainly back into the 30s, uh, with cognitive brain theory that was developed back then, Uh, knowledge schemas, and we'll talk more about these in just a minute, Uh, strategic devices, knowledge schemas are actually looking more at uh, perception structures, prototypes, uh, knowledge stored in memory, and so forth. Um, The strategic devices are looking much more at social movement work and how you create a master frame to get a lot of uh, different folks to follow or become part of that movement to fit with uh, political interest. Um, And the cognitive framing is much more, the first one is to develop more in artificial intelligence and work from some of that. So we've got three kind of long-scale kind of interdisciplinary traditions around approaches to frames and frames, not conflict frames, you say, but frames and frames. Communication research... Has had a lot of work on framing. Uh, A lot of it has come in media framing, uh, looking at how media, uh, how journalists actually produce packages of frames that actually cast the nature of a story, uh, using keywords, stock phrases, photos, captions, quotes, headlines, all of those things, packages for the way that they frame the thematic structure of news presentation. Also, media effects work has looked at audiences and the nature of audiences in terms of their agenda setting and their values and how that's developed. So uh, that has been a major factor. Interpersonal communication has also looked at metacommunication and ways in which this came from Gregory Bateson's work, ways in which different small cues that people demonstrate can tell you how to interpret what a set of actions are. You've got two kids who are struggling with each other and you're saying, are they fighting? Are they playing? And Bateson would say that you can come up with cues that can maybe distinguish between that, just like you do with teasing or sarcasm. What's the difference there? And these are meta cues of how to read that situation. And that has been very dominant uh, in a lot of the work in interpersonal communication. Turning to conflict framing, uh, early on, I get I tried to kind of tease out what's going on with this work starting to bubble up. There's a lot of it. What are the different perspectives on some of this? Uh, In 1992, I uh, worked on a piece that came up with three perspectives. Uh, Decision heuristics, which is the heuristics that a negotiator uses to make shortcuts in making decisions involved in the conflict, very cognitively based, but uh, heavily rooted in uh, Tversky and Kahneman's orientation of prospect theory, but interesting kind of framing work that was going to develop at that time. Frame categories, where people are trying to come up with what are the kinds of frame categories that are out there and then how do they impinge in certain kinds of conflict situations. And my own work started off with issue development. How do issues change over time? I'll talk to you a lot more about that in a minute. In a conflict situation, if you track them what happens to the nature of issues. As a result of some of that and critiques of it and so forth, uh, later on in uh, 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 2007 involved in this, or 2009, uh, we uh, went to a workshop that all of us worked very hard on trying to, let's come up with meta dramatic ways of trying to figure out what conflict framing is. So we actually added to what had been done earlier. What is it that gets framed? What are they framing when they talk about that? and what is the nature of the framing process that's part of that. Um, That work has uh, evolved into three different uh, perspectives on framing that I'll present to you. Um, This work is being done, again, interdisciplinarily by management scholars, psychology scholars, uh, as well as uh, by communication and uh, uh, conflict-related scholars in sociology. But you can get a picture of some of this. this. Parallels, what we talked about in terms of the interdisciplinary, the cognitive approaches are more heavily based on knowledge structures, mental representations of language. They fit into kind of schemas or approaches, and the decision heuristics fits into this, uh, focusing heavily on biases and perceptions that might develop. The sense-making work is really a combination of cognitive and interactional work. Uh, it's focusing much more on enacting meanings and how do those meanings get enacted. What are the frame categories that are producing the nature of those meanings? Uh, what kind of scripts are involved in some of those? What are the behaviorally, socially constructed, fluid ways in which they change over time and how? So it is both cognitive and interactional. The last approach has been done more heavily by communication scholars, although more recently by management scholars. into this using interaction as a basis for it. And that's how do you negotiate a frame together? How do you put that frame together? What, if I track actions, reactions, actions to reactions, and I'm looking at the framing process, how are we building this frame together? It's grounded in action. How are we performing it in the talk? How is it ongoing and fluid? And how does it begin to define what the conflict episode is? So we took this, and actually made some uh, reading on what is it that gets framed uh, within this. as a basis of trying to do this work and build theory about what's going on within this work. And we came up with four big things that were a basis for that. Uh, Issues, which was my early work. I've done a lot of work on issue management and topics. That's substantive issues, topics, agenda items, uh, proposals, counter-proposals involved in it. But identities are also being framed within this. These are self, social categorization, and identity theory. Constructing self, face management—a lot of face management goes on in some of this. Uh, Developing interests and rights. What is an interest? Is my underlying needs. What are my underlying needs, and how can I communicate them with you? Uh, Relationships. Certainly, that uh, examples I gave about the Edwards Aquifer, where people are characterizing all the other uh, members of the stakeholder groups, is a very much relational thing. Is it positive? Is it negative? Uh, How does it set off conflict parameters, punctuate what's going on within? Uh, Bill Donahue has done a lot of work on what he calls relational order framing, which is the way people move towards each other, away from each other, or with each other in the conflict situation. And he codes those around actions and interactions that are involved in it. So um, the last part is looking at a conflict process itself. People do frame that. They talk about what it is. What is it we're doing? What are we engaging? Is this a negotiation? If so, what kind of negotiation is it? Is it a conflict episode that is actually uh, trying to find a way to reach a common ground, or is it something trying to find a way so that we never have to work with each other type again? Uh, So what is the nature of that? Uh, Often people do that in the cognitive uh, arena by looking at ritualistic behaviors that might be in that. A scriptedness. Uh, For example, uh, and enables notions of, like, ordering at a restaurant. Well, a lot of people believe negotiation is just as scripted. If you don't come in tough, if you don't ask for far more than you need, you violated the script. And there's a lot of work that kind of shows that that is true. It will kind of fall apart by the nature of some of that. So the cognitive work is kind of focused much more on the framing in light of that. Sense-making work is focused more on how do people understand what they're doing? What's the reflexive interpretation of that? Uh, In my own work, and you'll hear about some of this, we did a lot on stories, retrospective stories, to try to focus on some of that. Interactional framing is what are the markers in the talk? What is actually going on in the talk? How does the talk evolve over time? Some of you who are linguists uh, would see this as more what we call speech acts. How does language act? How does language do something? How are we arguing, reprimanding, that's informing. Those are actually doing things that are involved in it. Uh, some of you familiar with uh, Goffman's work. Uh, it also entails footing. Footing is a kind of framing. That means, who am I speaking on behalf of? Who am I, am I speaking? And when I say to you, mom says you should come in, out of play, I'm speaking uh, only on behalf of mom. I'm just the deliverer of the message. And people sometimes look at those involved in the way in which interaction processes work. So my work that I'm going to start with is going to be this early work that I did in the teacher's body with interaction development and trying to look at the sequences of interaction over time and phases and stages and how they evolve. The kinds of questions that I ask in doing that type of work, as well as the rest of our actual studies I'm going to report on, which is an environmental framing study in the writer's strike, really is looking at how do those interaction patterns, language use, sense-making, patterns of framing occur. How do they evolve over time? Uh, How are they creating options? How are they reframing, redirecting kinds of things that might be happening in the dispute? Okay, let me talk with, uh, if you look at this approach called the interactional approach, uh, the definition of framing is a little bit different. You hone in on different things, and we talked about those just a little bit, uh, and I'm going to deal with the teacher's school board uh, issues. There. Some people look at teacher school board bargaining very much like this. Haven't we seen this before? <laughs> Haven't we been down that path before? and a lot of negotiations often repeat themselves a lot in the ways in which they operate. Uh, the particular ones that I studied actually uh, began to, were two different school districts, uh, and they weren't repeating themselves interesting enough because each time they're doing it, they're creating something new about how they deal with the nature of their contract and the nature of their uh, kinds of policies and practices. There was a rural and urban school district uh, we were involved in about 64 hours of observation of negotiation sessions, as well as they let us attend their caucuses, uh, which was pretty amazing. The teachers, we broke up the researchers, my research team, we broke up some of them were at the administrator's caucus caucus, and some were at the teacher's caucus. Uh, we all went to school to learn shorthand because they wouldn't let us videotape the actual negotiation. And later on, when my notes were subpoenaed by court, I understood why. And I could say, gee, they're just my notes. <laughs> and I didn't have to give them over to a subpoena in a grievance suit. Um, anyway, the, there's, we did as much near-verbatim dialogue as possible. What we had is uh, we would each take our shorthand notes and read them back into tape reporters as we left that negotiation. Uh, We produced about 2,800 pages of transcripts, and we had also 40 interviews with all the parties who were involved in that process. Um, We did our data analysis on this particular one by actually tracking chronologically the development of issues. We sorted issues over time. We sorted the kinds of agenda items, the kinds of proposals on the table, and we sorted them across the bargaining. So we looked for three things going on. Did the issue modify? and in what ways, how, was it retained exactly like it was? Was it dropped? And we have variations of those, but those were the very three things we tracked. Uh, we also tracked words, labels, and ways people name things. Uh, and we looked at uh, stories and examples for some of what was happening there. Just to give you an idea that this occurs, um, I'm gonna give you one example and then I'll give you some others as to how it occurred. But uh, the one that struck me most, I'll not forget, I walked out of the teacher's bargaining, and uh, I was stunned. They went in with the, I, the teachers went in with the idea that they needed their insurance premiums raised, that they, particularly for the family. It was just way too low. They needed more involved in it. They had heard administrators had actually gotten theirs raised in the previous bargaining because they actually didn't take a pay raise. They took a change in their insurance, and they said, it's time for our insurance. Well, that issue on the table, as it get battered about, back and forth, and, of course, it took a lot of different turns, uh, what was covered and not and what was in the program and so forth. And so through the 40 hours of negotiation, we tracked what went on in that. They ended up getting a new insurance carrier. Whoa, how did that happen? How could you go in with these very different proposals, clashing on what's going on, arguing about what's going on, and then come out the door with something totally different. So this is an example of the kind of tracking we were trying to do to figure out, and that wasn't the only issue involved in uh, in this kind of mapping. Um, So what we did on some of this is to uh, engage in what we call this jointly shaping. Uh, We tried to focus more heavily on the actions and interactions that went over time, We looked at the tracking and the development, and then we looked at the actual problem process that emerged from some of that. Let me back up. Let me give you some examples here of what's operating within this. Uh, One of the things that the teachers did uh, in this particular interaction that went on is they um, came in with a notion, uh, for example, that uh, the the framing that was going on or the kinds of subissues that they were developing uh, were not, were, were something they could totally create, come, come from from scratch. Uh, another one that kind of came from doing this was what I would call the uh, change in the extracurricular activity. Uh, and what we did is we tracked arguments over time regarding the nature of the teachers wanting to have equal pay between men and women in extracurricular activities. Well, of course, the administrators came back and said, are you kidding me? They do twice as much work, the men do, as the women. uh, Why would we pay you? We pay for what you do. We don't pay for the fact that you just need to be equal or equity. Well, you can imagine, this was around a Title IX potential suit, how volatile that kind of thing was. And what came out of that kind of issue, and we tracked where it occurred, how how did it enter in that someone said, The fairness is not the pay, the fairness is the sport. Why is women, why are women's sports treated so differently than men? Why is it that you have many more hours of basketball, many more games going on, and it is so different than the men's? Uh, of course you're not gonna have the women in terms of football, but why was golf different? They had other things that were different. They really came out of that and it was questioning what is fairness, which is an aging friend. They came out of that actually changing and upgrading the women's sports as a result of some of that. So what we're finding on some of this is transforming those issues has a lot to do with new sub-issues that come in. With a continued clash, you've got to keep talking about it over time, continually clashing. If you drop it, it's not going to transform. It's not going to change at any, any point in time. The other thing that came out of it uh, is that there's a it's not necessarily they converge on what each of them thought the problem was. They created a new definition of the problem. And when they created a new definition of the problem, they actually could then align the way in which they are going. So we're looking at that as being a way in which parties actually change and deal with uh new options coming into the negotiation process. I'll talk a little later how some of that uh, also occurred through the framing in terms of sense-making. So I'm going to carry on with the teacher's bargaining and talk a little more about sense-making. That's coming from this end, and I'm going to really deal with this notion of naming. What is the naming that's going on? What are the labels that are involved in this process? What are the repertoires of language that are developed as a result of that? Uh, I'm going to be looking a little bit more at storylines. Uh, sequences are involved in those storylines and at the way in which the parties actually brought in and made some differences about the historical context they were involved. And then I'll also apply this to the of strike. I'm going to look at reframing on this part. What is reframing? Reframing is a substantial difference in the way in which a frame develops or, uh, or is developed. And I'm going to be doing that a little bit more with uh, the naming and blaming that's involved in it. Okay, we're, uh, if we take this whole notion that framing is also uh, not just about mapping and frame alignment, that's what people mostly think, but it's about developing language repertoires together. How are you developing those? How are you getting kinds of meanings for some of those? Uh, it's also labeled to passive norms that people do and the ways in which they enacted the bargaining. Um, and many of the naming uh, conflict episodes involved a lot of blaming. And one of the reframings that's involved in this is moving. How do you move that, brain, that blaming away? How do you deal with some of what's operating within that? Uh, let me give you an example of this. Um, in the district one that I looked at, um, one of the teachers' bargaining said, um, you know, you've been violating our contract administrators. You know what you're doing? You're putting handwritten notes into our personnel files. You're not supposed to do that. According to the contract, we're supposed to sign those notes before we put them in the file. We have a right to know. You cannot do an evaluation without us being part or seeing what's going on. Uh, And the administrators responded, well, these are reminders. They're not evaluations. They're just reminders. Uh, So they're labeling these very differently. They're framing initially conversational reminders versus clandestine evaluations is what it ends up saying. And so this goes on a long time, back and forth, back and forth about what's happening. Uh labeling has a moral quality, it has distrust, stretching the limits of the contract, understanding you don't understand the evaluation system. All of this is going on for a period of time. And finally someone says, What's a prank? What is a file? What's a file? And everybody kind of looks like, oh, personnel file. Well, that's what you keep on someone. And they said, well, well, why do we have just one personnel file? What, What do we want with files? And so what occurred, this kind of systematic, I call it systematic questioning, of backing an issue into the larger context from which it occurred, led to a notion where they actually blamed the system, not each other. They finally quit doing some of that. They negotiated a whole new system of files. They had a management file, a building file, a personnel file, They ended up developing a whole bunch of rules and regulations for each of those files. Not that that's necessarily any better, because they'll probably argue over that next time. But anyway, they developed a whole new file system as a repertoire or way of dealing with social orders around the, the naming devices. So the point we're making here is that renaming actually disrupts the language game that people are playing in the conflict. Carl White gives an excellent example of this. He actually refers to the battered child syndrome, and he says, do you think there weren't battered children before we came up with the battered child syndrome? Of course there were, but only when we had uh, people come together who could come up with a social order and a new naming, uh, parental abuse not reported, and so forth, uh, could we get it on the radar of doctors and social workers and, and psychiatrists. So, the point I'm trying to kind of make here is language is not just words you stamp on something. It's got a social order connected to it. And that social order is what people are constructing and the conflict processes they're engaged in. Uh, Relational framing. Uh, The other study that, one of the other studies we did with the teacher's bargaining was to try to look at the ongoing relational experiences that they were producing and how they bracket them off. Uh, So we backed off and kind of looked at how does one sequence to another. I give this as a full example we're all aware of. Is I nag because you drink? Oh, no, I drink because you nag. And the whole kind of cause-effect set of relationships that go on are just dominant through conflict. I'm doing this because you do that. No, I'm doing this because you do this. And so these markers for attributions are really pivotal in the framing process and shifting or switching that framing process. Mainly because it leaves out a lot of things. Go back to your picture frame. When you take a picture, some stuff's not there, some, and it's leaving out some of those kind of things. The bracketing does that kind of thing. It leaves it out. Um, And of course, the uh, punctuating highlights attributions, and that's leaving out a lot of things involved in it. So we began to look at how the teachers uh, bracketed uh, reward systems that were involved, uh, particularly for preparation time. Uh, What was happening in one of the school situations is that the teachers were given advanced courses, that were more desirable, if they could actually use their preparation time wisely. Uh, The teachers uh, really didn't appreciate that. Uh, Many of them felt like that it was uh, a kind of discriminatory way of issuing that. Uh, The administrator said, you, some of you just don't do preparation time well. You're just not, you're not getting it done on, and then you come and complain to me you have to work all night to get this prep done for this advanced course, and uh, you're just not using it effectively. Uh, again, they kind of went back and forth, back and forth on their punctuation and their bracketing. Uh, and finally, someone raised the question, uh, well, what's the norm for the number of preparations, and how does it vary across different schools? Is it the same for middle schools? for high schools, for junior high schools involved. Uh, As they began to talk about that, they realized it wasn't. They also realized it really wasn't preparation. It was scheduling. It was a person doing the scheduling and assigning it that was causing the preparation time. And so they began to punctuate differently and bracket differently what was involved in the preparation process, and as a way of that, began to uh, deal with their conflicts differently. Storing and restoring is another way that people have actually looked at bracketing, uh, particularly in terms of whole story frames uh, that go on and uh, beginning to put those into enacted stories. I have one little enacted story that came during one of the teachers' bargaining that is really a, uh, a kind of interesting one because I think it brings in the larger historical context that was operating. I went to the administrators' caucus, and I did it after the teachers reneged on an offer. And in negotiation, reneging an offer means that you pull it off the. T- you put something else on the table that was worse than what you had on the table, and they were furious. The administrators were so upset. That's against bargaining in bad faith. What are you doing? Do they realize what's going on? Okay, let's get tough. Uh, I'm going to take that salary offer off the table. We're going to go back and get really tough about this. But one of the administrators said, "You know, Sally's kind of naive." She doesn't really know a whole lot about this process. Did you see her trying to mimic the uh, labor union guy and being tough? Uh, yeah, and did you see that uh, that other teacher there that was kind of bobbing her head up and down and nodding in agreement with us like a woodpecker? Uh, and they, they really went on talking about this. And finally, in the caucus, they constructed a different meaning. They constructed a story, maybe this is just a faux pas. Maybe they didn't mean it. Maybe they didn't intend to do it. They went back in and courageously, I think, said, did you realize you did this? Did you intend to do that? Had they not done that, I'm, I think that bargaining session would have fallen apart. It would not have made it. Had they gone back tough and uh, pulling off their uh, proposals from the table, it would not have made it involved in it. And so what happens in storing is a restoring sometime sometimes occurs when people introduce new elements into it. And mediators have developed that for a long period of time, trying to look at how can we shift the way the framing is going on by putting new elements in it uh, and involved in it. Okay, I want to shift off to um, basically looking at the uh, environmental framing. And I'm going to do this fairly quickly here, uh, involved in it. I work in environmental framing. and uh, You heard just briefly a little bit about this but uh, it involved four multi-party disputes that were involved and a lot of uh, uh, players. It crossed a lot of different kinds of disputes. It was Superfund sites. It was land use. It was water use involved in it. Uh, we did both quantitative and qualitative analysis of this. We developed frame categories. We compared those frame categories over time. And uh, we did cluster analysis of what was involved in terms of the stakeholders. There were eight stakeholder units involved in this. And those included environmentalist farmers, developers, industry people, neutrals, all the parties that are kind of various stakeholders are involved in. And we kind of clustered those together. Uh, we began to look at some bracketing of that uh, by focusing very heavily on those, what was in the figure and what was in the ground, in the ways in which these frame categories came together. So we, in our uh, cluster analysis, found some patterns among all those different stakeholders that had a lot to do with the primary frameworks. What was bigger? What were they bringing into this? And we found, of course, that uh, not surprisingly, some of these people were bringing negative characterization into it. Others, positive identities and positive characterizations. Others on collaborative conflict management or power involved in it. And what we expected out of this is that those stakeholder groups would be united. We expected environmentalists to all be in maybe something like power involved. We kind of expected the government officials to be over in collaborative conflict management. We kind of expected that the farmers would be over maybe focusing much more on kind of uh, the negative characterization. They were never happy in these disputes. We found we were wrong. We were absolutely wrong. Once we sorted out who was in these clusters, we found that they were strange bedfellows. They, they were people who should never be hanging together in their frame. They should have never had the same way of talking. what was going on in the conflict. Uh, so we got to thinking, what's going on here? That was our quantitative analysis. What's happening with this? This should hang together. These frame categories should work. And there should be, given these people have worked together in these conflicts, a solidification of that. So we went back into the interviews, transcripts, and we began to code and deal with uh, the, the ways in which the bracketing was occurring and the framing was occurring was inside that. And we found that what was going on in these uh, these kinds of clusters we developed were not the as strongly primary frameworks as they were some that were in the background. And interesting, what we found is all the people who had a negative characterization also had victimhood as the kind of basis for how they were dealing with it. And those that were and the power notion were also powerless and they had moral frames about what was happening. So, what we found is that indeed, if you're shifting from the background to the foreground and the way in which you're developing and making sense of these conflicts, there's a there's an opportunity here. Uh there's a real opportunity, and the mediators who went in after these disputes actually use this as the kinds of opportunities. First, you can talk vulnerability, you can talk lived experiences conflicts, you can talk about the nature of the afterlife and what that means and where you go. You can talk about learning from those stakeholders about hurt and conflict ripeness and readiness for settlements. You can restory what's going on. This occurred in the timber wars in California, Northern California in a town hall meeting, shifted the story away from power struggles between the environmentalists and the loggers and also talked about collective suffering. And once they did that, they were able to shift some of the frames that were operating within that, uh, as well as uh, about economic growth that they all needed so much more of. The last one, and I will make this brief, that I want to talk about, also considers sense-making, but I'm going to the writer's strike. And the difference in this study is that it's strategic framing. We're not looking at it emergent, as it was in the other studies that were involved, but we're looking at strategically how this happened. Uh, many of you are familiar with the writer's strike. It happened not that long ago. Uh, it was a, a very costly strike. If you look at the number of times, uh, number of days involved, and the amount of money and so forth, the media coverage of, for the most part, historically, of unions is not good. Um, you look at it, there's there's articles written on it, a lot of media framing analysis of it. Uh, labor, they claim labor makes threats and demands. Management makes offers. Uh, the consumer's king involved, uh, they say that the, the work has shown that the public tends to ignore the deeper causes in the paper management and most of the uh, processes that are going on. So we were curious about, curious about that. Is that what's going to happen in this type of crime Is that what's going to happen in this type of campaign? So we went in to uh, look at press releases, news reports, web documents. Uh, We took a lot of uh, uh, Articles 135 from the LA Times and the New York Times. We took 37 blog entries from the Deadline Daily um, Hollywood. And then we developed sequences of all the events that went on. This was like 25 pages of uh, sequences of 149 different events. We then sorted those. We found this is fascinating. There's a whole set of different events we don't understand. There's all these internal ones that go on in the negotiation. But there's these external ones like fan demonstrations and international demonstrations and politicians coming in and so forth. Uh, we then sorted them into the WGA, the Writers Guild, and the AMPTP, arranged them chronologically and plotted them, and began to look at the ratio of the framing that developed within them. Uh, we found some interesting language patterns, not surprising in some of this. Uh, the AMPTP. Uh, frame their kind of stance on issues is economic sustainability. Some of you may remember this strike was over residuals. And residuals has to do with how much money the writers are getting for all the new media, for streaming videos, for uh, even uh, DVDs at the time. They were getting very little for any of the kind of media that was reproduced. Uh, And, of course, the management came in and said, we don't want any changes in the current policy we have. Uh, they called it a recoupment proposal, uh, a new economic partnership. Uh, the WGA framed it as, a, a, we need to share the pie. We need a fair deal. It's a rollback, what you're creating. They had relational framing that was extremely dominant in this dispute. This is a strike. It's already escalated beyond belief. But uh, of neither one being serious, neither one working together, over a period of time, WGA began to call it all corporate greed. Uh, involved in it. Uh, the conflict process train, framing that went on. Uh, it's interesting that management started out by saying, well what's a strike? A strike vote is routine. They're not going to do it, but they did. <laughs> so they didn't take it seriously in the beginning, in the initial kind of press releases that they had. Then they ended up with strikes disastrous for workers. Uh, and of course the WGA is framing it as, as this is actually closed down the town. Uh, in the way that you're handling uh, the nature of this dispute. Uh, we expected a whole lot of, when you count kinds of frames in development, a lot more on issues. There wasn't. There was really very little issue coverage. It was heavily on the process itself and the relational framing that went on. We also found a great deal of moral framing, and WGA got the high moral ground on that. Corporate greed, uh, exploitation of misery, unfairness and injustice. Now, that's not just in the media language. It's also in the production of the blogs. It's a harsh reality for um, reality workers, speechless without writers, horror writers staging an exorcism, pencils for media moguls. Uh, A lot of injustice and fairness were in all the orchestration they did in a public campaign. Uh, So what factors may have affected the nature and the settlement of some of the strikes? There are a lot of things that went into it, Uh, certainly the economic impact of the Academy Awards we believe made a big difference. A lot of face saving went on when the ANTPP got a deal with the Directors Guild that allowed them to begin to use that as kind of a pattern bargaining for the WGA. Uh, They also switched negotiators. They threw out their negotiator and happened to get the uh, CEO of Disney to come in as a negotiator. Uh, but there was also solidarity at the WGA. For the first time in all the strikes they had, they hung together. And uh, that was the East uh, and the West involved in that. Uh, they also created a public campaign that was uh, actually more about solidarity and trying to bring solidarity to a lot of uh, other uh, unions. They created, and this wasn't unusual, uh, the divide and conquer. They actually created deals with a lot of 31 independent producers involved in it. But we'll say the other thing. Our public opinion polls, and we track them through the whole thing, actually show an increase from 32% supporting the union, up to 65% in what was going on. Uh, The solidarity uh, processes were international solidarity movements in Dublin, Paris, Amsterdam, London, Sydney, and Montreal that was going on. Again, I think strategically developed in this campaign. And I think the moral framing caught on. It's only fair for AMPTP to give us a tiny taste of the pie. Uh, so I think that the framing did have an instance. And also, they did not do what we called a corporate campaign. They did a public campaign. A corporate campaign is when you go after the financial base of the management. You actually hurt the company image. You go after boycotts. You reduce sales. You go into legal battles and so forth. They did not do that. They really ran a pretty, what we would call, a much more public opinion-oriented campaign uh, that was involved. Okay, what can we say about all of this in framing? What can we come up with? Well, if you cross some of this, there are some things that we have kind of learned about that. Uh, First of all, sustaining development on issues, and that's something to remember, not to drop it, aids in the reframing process. We found it for all the issues that, that were in the teachers' bargaining, uh, that those that, of course, got cropped or those that actually got retained, where nobody tried to modify the nature of the issues, actually never got reframed within that process and often stalemated. Uh, collectively defining a problem can emerge not from aligning frames, which is what the, wor- the, the work had been done previously, but from shifting them, radically shifting them in different ways, naming new things, bringing new things in, and so forth. We also found that in relational framing, and it's important that any naming that goes on actually has blaming in it. And a lot of our, I think, our disputants weren't aware that if you name it a certain way, you are implying a certain kind of blaming. This is the bracketing process. Uh, Shifting language repertoires, moving levels of abstraction to try to do some of that, Uh, changing reference to what the problem is, moving from an individual reference to a system reference, actually made a difference in reframing processes. Uh, We also found that taking a moral stance in the negotiation uh, introduced um, much more blaming process and negative characterization that was involved in some of that. Theoretical contributions in terms of conflict process, uh, a few of those that we'll just highlight here, uh, is expanding that context of what the conflict is about is vital to introducing new ways to frame it. And those kind of issues and disputes that did some of that. That's introducing new story elements, new characters, new thoughts, new scenes, new story elements into that. Redefining the conflict process itself made differences in the issues and the relationships that got reframed. Uh, some practical contributions come out of this. And this comes from the conflict transformation work, which has been going on a lot among practitioners, mediators, third-party neutrals. Uh, there's a new book coming out with Keith Pellett. Uh, called Conflict Transformation that's actually two volumes that is actually looking at different ways people transform the nature of these conflicts. And there are several chapters in there on framing. Uh, When we talk about transformation, we're talking about new understandings, potential for dialogue, potential for collective sense-making involved in that. Uh, And we found some ways that that did occur. Those systematic questions are skills we ought to be teaching. We ought to teach people how to how to ask those kind of questions, when to ask those kind of questions, how they enter in, what's going on. You count uh, what goes on in typical conflict and typical negotiation is very low on questions, very high on arguments and statements. Uh, So trying to teach that process. Probing for missing elements in conflict stories. What hasn't been told, what should, what is prevalent. Developing ways of re-engaging and restoring. Someone introducing and challenging the way an interpretation is going which is what happened when the administrator kept the teacher, kept the uh, administrator from going in and reneging against the teachers. Let's, let's just introduce another op- opportunity, another interpretation for that. Using retrospective stories to capture live experiences. Uh, and that is, again, being started to be used a lot in mediation circles where you actually try to get that lived experience involved. Uh, and then framing some of those patterns to alter the blaming itself. Uh, The argument that's being made is that if people can focus on the process of the conflict and the communication going on in it, you can really change the language game. You can actually become a master of the language game, not just a player of the conflict process. Finally, I'll introduce the idea of paradox, uh, because all of this is rooted in paradox, and it makes it more difficult to do these kinds of steps and actions as a result of that. Uh, We know the conflict is in contradiction. That's what it's about. It's about bipolar opposites and dichotomies that are interdependent with each other. Uh, Making, framing part of that, though, is actually trying to hold those tensions together. That's the opposite of what we would think. We would think that you would have one pole win over the other pole. Uh, Again, that doesn't work as well. Keeping them together Uh, we call it conflict differentiation, allows you to differentiate and decide what is this conflict really about. Sometimes you need to lose the battle to win the war. That's what happened in a few of these, and that's a paradoxical kind of situation that's involved. Also addressing lived experiences. Uh, Sometimes it seems absurd, but it actually worked in the way in which those negotiators and mediators were able to deal with the conflict. Finally, I think you need to work with a rhythm of dissonance and um, resonance. Swaying not too much in one direction, not too much in another. Uh, Finding ways to introduce totally different ways you can come at the conflict, which might actually change what the conflict's about, alter the framing, and get a redefinition of the conflict situation.